0: Well, this morning we come, uh, obviously, to the, the final message in 1 Timothy, a wonderful letter. I thoroughly enjoyed studying and even more being able to, to lead us through the study of this book. But as we come to this final section, verses 17-21, the whole issue here, although two different subjects are dealt with, really uh, revolve around one thing, and that is handling treasure. Paul's talking about here. Handling treasure. If if you were given something valuable to hold on to for someone else, think about that. Someone comes to you with something extremely valuable and they trust you. They want you to hold on to that. There's a great sense of responsibility, right? This is yes. There's a great sense of responsibility and that's basically what Paul is talking about here. <clears throat> it's all about handling riches, which, are, which really belong to God, and all about handling truth, which also belongs to God. We're stewards. That's to use a biblical term. That's who we are as God's people. We are stewards. God has given to us. Something to hold on to, to, to manage, to be stewards of. It's basically the Christian life that He's given us. Those who know Christ, it's basic to the Christian life that you live out your Christianity on the basis of how you handle your stewardship, how you handle your riches, and how you handle truth. In many ways, is the mark of the character and quality of your Christian faith. It's the measure of your Christianity. So, if you're looking at your handout here, if you're like me, you were you, you wondering, is Paul ever going to get to the issue of money? He saves it for last. The handout here says the main idea is using wealth for eternal gain and guarding the treasure of truth. Using wealth for eternal gain and guarding the treasure of truth. Verses 17 through 19. Here we see the dangers and the responsibilities of wealth. We have a responsibility what God's given us, but there's also dangers that comes with that. He says there, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope, listen to this, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 17, Paul, he gives a charge. That word charge, some of you have a translation that may use the word instruct, is just like the other times that we've seen that word in 1 Timothy. It's a military word meaning a command. Okay? Does everybody understand? This is a command. I'm charging you, Timothy. Paul is not giving out helpful hints here. But this is God's authoritative command for His people. And notice who Paul is charging as for the rich in this present age it's very tempting at this point to say well Paul must be speaking to someone else other than me because I'm not rich I know that's what's going through your mind right now I, I can like the other times I've told you we, we like to dismiss these things that we think don't apply to us we may have in our minds some idea of what it which takes us out of the category of being rich we have this thing in our mind that we think well this will remove me from that category and it doesn't belong to me, but here's what we need to understand. Are you listening? The person here today who has the least has more than the wealthiest person who first heard this letter read to this congregation. You sitting here today who have the least, you have more than the people who first heard this letter read to them. We live in the most prosperous Society, the most well off culture in the history of the world. And we are among the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world. You're like, that comes as a surprise to me. Here's what I mean by being rich being rich means you have more than you need, that makes you rich. I'm sorry, what was that? That is, you have more than you need to live, eat, sleep, clothe yourself, and do what you have to do. It's not whether you have a Mercedes, a big house on a hill, a large bank account, a boat, a camper. But being rich means you have more than you need. God's words here are for all of us. So don't check out this morning, okay? You say, well, I'll tell you, by the time I've paid my house payment... By the time I've paid my car payments, and by the time I've bought clothes, and by the time we've eaten, there's nothing left. Been there, done that. Yes, but you are still rich. And here's why because you choose to have all of those things. We choose our cars, we choose our trucks. Instead of having transportation, we choose a certain kind of transportation. Instead of having a warm place where we can sleep and eat, we choose to have a furniture store that we call our home. I'm guilty. Okay? I'm guilty. To be rich means to have optional dollars. Most Western Christians fall into this group. Okay? So, there's my argument for you not being able to check out. Okay? Which means you've got to listen now, right? Rich, he says, in this present age. Present age refers to time. Rich in this present world. Rich at any given time. It also indicates that earthly wealth is in view here. It's not spiritual riches, but it's talking about earthly wealth here. He's talking about this present age right now, which means it can apply to any point in time in the history of the world. In this present age. First Paul says, charge them, the rich, that's me and you, not to be haughty. That's the first principle. Those who have been given much in this present age are not to become prideful because of that. Christians who are blessed with with worldly means, listen, we must be on guard for the harmful consequences that result from those means. And that is the sin of pride. It will creep in. Paul makes the Christian aware there's a danger in having much in the way of material possessions. And one of those dangers is that we become proud. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Here's the writer of Proverbs. He's talking to God. And listen to His words. These are very interesting words. Two things I ask of you, God. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Those are good things. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What is that, what is that writer of that proverb saying? God don't make me rich or don't make me poor because in either situation... I could sin against you. In what ways have you, or or myself, in what ways have we become proud? Having much may tempt us to think that we don't need the Lord. I remember uh, going uh, with a former pastor one time, door to door, sharing the gospel. And we're in the car and we pull up to this particular house or this particular person that the pastor knew. And there was someone else in the car and he looked at us and says, what in the world are we going to tell this guy that he needs? Based on his house and what was sitting in his driveway. What are we going to tell this guy that he needs? Having much may tempt us to think that we don't need the Lord. There, there is such a thing as wealth-induced pride. And Paul says here, charge those who are rich, you and I sitting here today in this present world, not to be haughty, not, don't be prideful. Another way pride reveals itself is that it has a way of pushing you in your own mind above the people who have less than you do. Yep, we do that, right? We look at someone, we look down our nose at them and go, hmm, I wonder why they're in the situation that they're in. If they were more like me, they wouldn't be in that situation. We tend to look down on people who are lower on the economic ladder than we are. You begin to make distinctions in your mind as to the value differences between people. We do that. We make value differences in people based on their economic situation, where they're at, in comparison to us. Some of you are shaking your head. Yeah, I'm, yeah, we're all guilty of that. We, we, we look at that and we say, well, what's wrong with them? What's going, what's going on with them? In James chapter 2, we read, How dare you let somebody come into your church with a gold ring and set him in the front and have a man come in with disheveled clothes and stick him under your feet somewhere. What's James saying? We have a tendency to elevate those who might help us, right? And those who don't, we kind of do what? Here's the way we look at people all the time. People either help us or they hinder us, right? And we treat them based on what they can do for us. How dare you let somebody come into your church with a gold ring, sit him in the front, have a man come in with the shovel clothes and and stick him under your feet somewhere. Do you realize that God is no respecter of persons and you have violated the royal law, the law of love? Oh, what what is he saying there? When you treat people that way, you violate the royal, the supreme law of God. That is the law of What? Love. You don't love people when we treat them that way. Second, Paul says in verse 17, Charge those who are rich in this present age, excuse me, present world age, not to set their hope, their trust on the uncertainty of riches. Now, what does Paul say about riches? They are what, church? Uncertain. Some of you know that, Right? Uncertain. Sometimes we put our hope in the wrong thing or we can do it with people. We put hope in the wrong place. And one of the things that worldly wealth can tempt us to do is to find our security in that worldly wealth. Proverbs 11.28 says, He that trusts in his riches shall surely fall. Trust. Put your confidence in and your your trust in your riches what does the bible say you trust you hope you find your security in that you're you're headed for a what a fall in the gospel of luke we find Jesus story about the rich fool you know the story he was he's a wealthy man and he was satisfied and he took security in the amount of things that he built up and what did he do he built bigger barns to store up the grain that he had he brought in. But what happened to him? That very night, his soul was required of him. His hope was in the wrong place. That's what that story is about. Hope in the wrong place. His hope was in the wrong place. Why? Because it was, his hope was in his worldly wealth. His worldly wealth had tempted him to find his security in the here and now and the uncertainty of riches. Why are riches uncertain? Look at it. Why are they uncertain? Because they pertain to what? This present world. Oh, and this world is what? Not our home. Look at verse 17 again. Charge those who are rich in this present world uh, to set their hope, where? On God. Now, if I polled you, most of you, if I said, should we put our trust in God or money? I know what most of you would say. Any good Christian is going to say, well, God, of course. This This is the cure to finding your security in temporary things. And whether we realize it or not, we're going to leave it all behind, right? Somebody else is going to get it. You heard the story. Guy going to the cemetery. I heard. I read a story the other day where a guy was, uh, as my dad used to say, he had enough money he could burn a wet elephant. That's I'd take a lot of money to burn a wet elephant with. And they were. They, they took this guy to the cemetery in his elaborate, multi-thousand-dollar car. And you know what they did with him? They put him in the front seat and buried him in that car. And one guy says, man, that's life, isn't it? And I thought, there's a cure to finding security in temporary things. Paul says, Christian, make sure you trust in God. The God who gave the wealth, not the wealth God gave. There's an example of this in the Old Testament. Job. Job was a man of great wealth, was he not? Job was. The, listen to this. Job was the wealthiest man of the present age, but he loved God more than he did anything he had. Do you remember what Satan said to God about Job? If you take away what you've given him, God, he will what? Curse you to your face. Now my question: If you did, Job do that? Job lost it all, did he not? man sitting out there scraping his skin with whatever that was he broke off and potsherd or whatever that is, scraping them sores. Lost everything. But he loved God. You... Job didn't do that. Because Job's hope was in the God who gave him wealth, not the wealth that God gave See, Job knew. God gave it all, but it could all be gone tomorrow. But guess what? I still got God. Verse 17, Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice the word but there. There's a contrast. Paul says, look, stop the scene of pride and stop the scene of trust in money and put your trust, your hope in God. This can go for those of you who are here today who are lost as well as those who profess Christ. Psalm chapter 50 verses 10 through 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine. This is God talking. Listen to this. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. As an old preacher used to say, even the taters under the hills belong to God. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. You hear what God He said, if I was hungry, which He can't be, if I were, I wouldn't even talk to you about that. Because everything's mine anyway. And notice as well that it's not just God, but God who what? Richly provides us with everything to what? Enjoy. God gives us all things for enjoyment. God is good. God is gracious. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul tells how he had learned to be content in whatever state he was in. Whether he had plenty or whether he was in poverty. Because Jesus was the source of his contentment. If we fix our hope on Jesus, then we can enjoy everything good that's coming from the loving hand of God. We can overflow with thanksgiving for life itself, for food, for housing, clothing, family, friends, material possessions. Even if all this is taken away, we can still have the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life in Him. Amen? Amen. If it's all gone tomorrow, nobody can take Jesus and eternal life away from us. So here's my application for you in this. And I'm talking to Christians here. It's lost people as well but Christians in particular, is your hope really in God Himself? Or, or could it be in your things? Now listen, I'm preaching to myself this this morning. I, as a matter of fact, I had to do it all week long. Is your hope, my hope, is it really in God? Or could it be in my things most of us need to loosen our grip on things and tighten our grip on jesus that's what we need to do if you have something you can't live without you don't own it it owns you if you have something you can't live without you don't own it it owns you verse 18 command them that are rich they are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's clear that no one is saved by good works, but only by grace through faith in Jesus, right? You're sitting here today, you can't do anything good to gain favor with God, to gain eternal life. You're sitting here lost today, you can work all of your life, and you'll never meet the standard that God has set. For righteousness That comes through faith in Christ. You cannot work to gain favor with God. You cannot work to gain eternal life. You must turn from your sin and trust in the work that Christ did. But Ephesians 2 is equally clear that everyone who is truly saved is saved for good deeds. To walk in them. If a person claims to be saved by faith, but his life is not growing in holiness and good deeds, his claim is suspect. Paul is saying here, you take what God has given you and do good. The word good there means what is noble and excellent, not what is superficially good. The rich, us, are to use their lives and wealth to do good, noble, excellent things. Next, Paul says to be rich in good works. Paul's contrasting squandering wealth with using it for what? Good good deeds are doing noble things on behalf of others. The idea is that rich Christians should be rich in good deeds is an evidence of their life overflowing with gratitude to God for His gift of eternal life. You know why you do good to others and share with others? It's because God has done the same thing to you in redeeming your wretched life. Again, verse 18... We are to be generous and ready to share. In other words, Christian, God's given you much, so you need to be generous. And I'm preaching to myself here, as well as you. What is our natural tendency when God gives us much? Selfish. To use it for... Me, myself, and I, to use it for our own ends, for our own advancement and comfort. Stop and think about it. When you get a raise, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Come on. What can I buy me with this? Right? Guilty. What can I buy me? But God says here, be generous, be ready to share. Those of us who have much... Listen to me, have a privilege and a greater responsibility to share with others and to care for those less fortunate, especially other believers. you hear I said it was a privilege? Verse 19, Paul tells us that we are to store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that, listen, which is truly life. Paul urges the rich to consider the end result of properly handling what he gives us. He gives us incentive for being generous and ready to share. Notice what he says. We store up treasure for who? Us, right? As a good foundation for when? The future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The word store up means to accumulate. Listen, that word means to store up To accumulate treasure. The word foundation means an account, like bank account. Your greatest fraternal investment is not in this life. Those who store up, build a foundation, an account for when? The future. In Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount think you're familiar with these words Jesus says do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal God's given us much right church that's where you can say amen if you've never said it before now's a good time we must intentionally lay up treasure, put our hope in other things of this world, but we must lay up treasure in heaven so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is stressing that true riches have nothing to do with earthly wealth, which is uncertain. For this age only. The only riches that will survive this world are those invested by God's people through generous giving, storing up treasure in heaven. Here's what you need to understand: those who give never suffer loss, but get richer and richer and richer in the age to come. Oh. That's when I get what I'm looking for, right? What unbelievable incentive. A mass treasure in heaven. And a hold now on what is truly life. You see that? Your Lord's coming here, but you really want to have true life now? This is the way you live it in order to have that. Here's the way we apply this. The overarching issue is simply this. You use your wealth, your stewardship, what God has given you. And you view that as a matter of lordship. It's a measure of whether you understand God. Jesus as Lord of your life or not. In other words, it's a spiritual issue. How you use what God has given you is a very important spiritual matter. Your attitude towards money, your use of money is an indicator of your sense of mission in this life. And it's also an indicator of what the ultimate object of your worship is. Example. Giving... To the church. You're like, I knew the preacher was going there at some point in time. Some of us call it what? Go ahead. Tithing, right? Um, I'm not going to go into all the controversy about whether you should or whether you shouldn't. Some people say uh, that's an Old Testament principle, but when I read the New Testament, Jesus doesn't dismiss it, so I kind of think it's still in place. And whether you think it's not, read the Bible, New Testament, carefully, and God says to give what, generously, in response to your salvation. Give to God in response to what He's done for you. The matter of your giving is between you and God. That's biblical. The important thing is that you see giving as a privilege and not as a burden. An offering plate comes by in your life. It should not be out of a sense of duty, but rather out of love for the Lord and desire to see His kingdom grow. The deeper question is this What has priority in your life, in my life? Is Jesus really first, or do you put yourself and your desires first? We spend money on what we care the most about. I mean, that's just logic. How does what you spend your money on, what does it say? What does it say about who you love, about who you worship, and about what you ultimately care about? Now, listen to me carefully. Because I don't want you leaving here saying something that I did not say. Here's what Paul is not doing here. Are you listening? You'll like this part. Go ahead and wake up. Listen, you'll like this. He's not condemning those whom God has blessed with material wealth. You're going, Whew, that's a relief. But He does require us to apply good stewardship to what He's given us. Paul's not condemning you for having. The point is, what are you doing with what God has given you? Paul, Paul's not commanding you to get, to rid yourself of your possessions and take a vow of poverty. Still, he's calling on you and me to have a proper perspective on the management of what God has given us. You know, a lot of times we look at other people and out of envy we're like, how do they get all they get? Look at me. You know what? Don't worry about them. Just worry about what God's given you and be a good steward of what He's given you. Because you've got to give an account for that one day and He'll give an account for what He's done with His. Verses 20 21. Guard the truth and avoid what is false. O oh, Timothy, guard... The, what is that word? The Holy Spirit didn't choose that word by accident. That word's chosen for a reason because it sounds like what? Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. Notice how Paul speaks to Timothy. He speaks that little word, oh, in front of Timothy. Oh, Timothy. It's an emotional appeal. It it's an exhortation, it's a, it's a command. Now, the name Timothy, and by the way, when names were given out back then, their names meant something. They purposely gave them a name because it meant something. Anybody want to know what Timothy's name means? One who honors God. So if you have somebody in your family whose name's Timothy, you can go home and tell them. You know what your name means? One who honors God. Paul says, Timothy, live up to your name. Oh, Christian, live up to your name. Christian. Not your earthly name, but your spiritual label. Christian, live up to that name. Notice what he tells Timothy. Guard the deposit. Guard has the idea of keeping valuables in a safe place. Remember what I said at the beginning? Guard, Timothy, keep safe the what? The deposit. The deposit refers to the truth, God's Word. Timothy, guard, keep God's Word safe. Turn a couple of pages over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Maybe it's just one page in your Bible. Maybe you just got to look right across. You may not even have to turn. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit, the treasure entrusted to you. Paul tells Timothy this three or four times in first and second Timothy. Timothy, guard the treasure. Timothy, how did Paul refer to Timothy? A week or maybe a week before that, he called him what? A man of God. Timothy, man of God, value the truth, protect the truth, defend the truth, preserve the truth. That word deposit has the idea of treasured possession. What's Paul telling Timothy? This is gold. you got to guard it. You've got to protect it. Stop to think about it. God gave us His Word. The mind of God is right here. God gave that to us. It's a treasure. A treasured possession has been entrusted to us, the church. You have been entrusted with the word of salvation, with the word of truth, with the very revelation of God. So church, value it, protect it, defend it, retain it, hold on to it. All of it. Even the hard parts. Are there some hard things in the Bible for us to take? Yes, sir. But we don't get to pick and choose, right? Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Paul goes on in verse 20, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions what is falsely called knowledge. Avoid means to turn away from it. Turn away from irreverent babble. Some of you have the word profane. Anything unsacred, something outside of what is holy. Something that's not connected to God. What's he saying? You need to turn away from that. Do you see? Guard the truth. Protect the truth. But what's unsacred, what's unholy, what has no connection with God, you need to avoid. Turn away from that. He says, avoid the irreverent Bible and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. I think we know what the word contradict means. It means to be in opposition, Right? You say something and I contradict you, that means I believe something else. I, I contradict. It's opposition. It, it's, it's those who want to attack the Bible. It says these attacks are what is falsely called knowledge. These people think they have knowledge, but what they know or what they think they know doesn't line up with God's Word. Paul's telling Timothy that these types of things must be avoided. Timothy, the, the pastor, the elder the elders, the pastors, the ministers of the gospel, all Christians must not become entangled in studying and following after and discussing and contemplating all these opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Christian, don't spend a minute of your time meditating on these new truths that we hear. Don't spend a minute of your time meditating on these new truths that are being brought in opposition to the sound teaching of God's Word. Here's what I tell you. Don't waste your time trying to figure out what they believe. You just believe this and you won't have a problem figuring out what's wrong. It's like counterfeit money, right? You know the people that can detect counterfeit money? You know what they study? The real thing. That way when a counterfeit comes through they know what's wrong. What's wrong? Here's what this means. What this means for you is that the teachings of the traditions of man have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. It means that you shouldn't get upset if your pastor tells you what or who you're reading is bad for you. Every book, and you've heard me say this, in the Christian bookstore cannot be trusted. Every TV or internet preacher is not on the up and up. How can I know if they're telling me the truth? This right here. You know this. You hear them say something. Get this out. Compare it. Why? Look at verse 21. Here's your motive. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul is saying that bad theology leads to spiritual destruction. It leads to people abandoning the truth. Bad TV preachers, bad internet preachers, bad books in the Christian bookstore lead others away from the faith. Look at verse 21. Paul concludes with a benediction. I love the way he does it. He's just kind of like, man, he's doing this and all of a sudden he just stops and says, grace be with you. All of you. And here's what Paul is doing. Timothy, you've got to guard this treasure. But he calls on Timothy to, to rely upon the grace of God to do so. Grace be with you, Timothy. The grace of God not only saves us, but the same grace sustains us and helps us live. Rely upon the grace of God, Timothy. That's simple words, right? Rely upon the grace of God. But how, much, how often do we do that? We, we think, oh yeah, grace saved us, but the same grace that saved us is the grace that sustains us and carries us through this life. We depend upon God. We depend upon God to help us live this life. And my my point would be, how much do you pursue God to ask for that grace? You know where that comes from? His word and through time and prayer. Pursuing God, relying upon His grace. In fact, it's not just Timothy he's talking to here, he calls upon the whole congregation to rely upon the grace of God. You know how I know that? Because the word you is in the plural. The word you here in verse 21 is plural. In the south we would say what? Grace be with y'all. That's what Paul is saying here. Grace be with y'all, the church, to do what all of 1 Timothy has called us to do. Why did, first, why did Paul write this letter? So that we know how to behave and act and conduct ourselves as the people of the church of God. Why this blessing of grace... It's because for the regular life of the believer, the grace of God is essential. There's nothing that we are able to do apart from the grace of God. And there's nothing that God cannot do through us by His grace. Nothing that He can do through us by His grace. We are always dependent on God for His grace. That's important for us to remember in the life of this congregation, in the life of this church. We have a tremendous opportunity. We have tremendous opportunities and challenges for ministry and service before us, but we must be dependent upon the grace of God because we can do absolutely nothing without it. You know, there's churches lined up and all down our country, North Carolina, churches on every road that we go up and down that don't depend upon the grace of God, they just sit there and take up space. They exist but they, they accomplish nothing. It's because they don't depend upon the grace of God. The realities of life in this fallen world and and, and of life in ministry in an imperfect church, the only hope we have is the grace of God. We've got we to get that in our minds, church. That we are utterly dependent upon the grace of God to fulfill this mission He's called us to be on. Just as lost sinners need the grace of God that comes through Jesus Just as He needs that grace for forgiveness of sin, we the saved sinners, the church, we need God's grace. And here's what I'd say, closing. Those of us today who profess Christ, those who would say that we're saved, we've trusted in Jesus, maybe you need to pray today for God's grace. God's grace to help you be a good steward of what He's given you. Maybe you should pray for God's grace to help you be a, a better follower of Christ, a better church member. We all need to pray for God's grace to live for Him. We need God's grace to be His church. And here's what I would say to those of you who are lost here today. You need to call out to God today for His saving grace. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. I'm not one of those kind who wants to scare people into trusting in Jesus, but God has you here today as a divine appointment. It's not an accident you're here today. You're here by God's design. God providentially placed you here and you're like, well, I come every week. Praise God for that. But God put you here. God got you out of bed, brought you here this morning. He'll take you home today. But if you're lost today, you need to call out to God for His saving grace. You need to acknowledge to God that you're a sinner and your sin separates you from Him. And that you're going to turn from that sin. By God's grace, you're going to trust in Jesus. Trust in His work to redeem you from your sin. That's what lost people need to do today. That's what you and I, as saved people, need to pray for in just a minute that some of the lost here today will to do that. Let's pray.